This devotional address with Michael Drake was given on October 4, 2022. Good morning, brothers and sisters, and welcome to our campus devotional. Today, we will have the opportunity of hearing Michael Drake, professor of accounting in the Merritt School of Business. We extend a special welcome to his wife, Mackenzie, who is seated next to him, as well as their family members and friends who have joined us today. Michael S. Drake is the K. Fred Skousen Professor of Accounting in the School of Accountancy at the BYU Merritt School of Business. He earned his bachelor's and master's degrees in accounting at BYU and his doctorate in accounting at Texas A&M University. Professor Drake currently teaches in graduate programs in the Merritt School of Business. Prior to coming to BYU in 2011, Dr. Drake was a faculty member at the Fisher College of Business at The Ohio State University. He has also worked professionally at Arthur Anderson and Ernst & Young. Brother Drake enjoys watching sports and was a member of the BYU men's soccer team. He and his wife, Mackenzie, are the parents of five children. And now we'll be pleased to hear from Michael S. Drake. Well, on the heels of such a wonderful general conference where we heard from so many experienced speakers, I confess that I feel a little bit like an inexperienced youth speaker in sacrament meeting and regret not having asked my mom to just write this devotional for me. This, uh, this could all be over in three and a half minutes. And uh, well, to introduce my topic this morning, I invite you to review a list of the top 15 highest grossing films of all time and to identify a common thread among them. What do most of these movies have in common? Well, these are stories of action and adventure. These are stories about heroes coming to the rescue. These are stories where the lines between good and evil are generally very well defined. The one possible exception, of course, being Titanic, where we can hardly blame the iceberg for doing what icebergs do. Right? <laughs> to use language common in the Book of Mormon, these are stories of deliverance. Well, what don't we see on the list? We don't see straight comedies. We don't see many dramas, love stories, or rom-coms. Sorry, no Jane Austen. The financial takeaway is fairly straightforward. If your objective is to make as much money in Hollywood as possible, then make a story about deliverance. Production studios like Marvel have clearly figured this out. Since 2008, when Iron Man was released, Marvel has produced 29 stories of deliverance. Why do we love these stories? Why do we keep going back for Ant-Man 5? <laughs> it's, it's coming, and you'll see it. I don't think it's the capes, I don't think it's the masks, I don't think it's the visual effects. You know, when you've seen one explosion, you've seen them all. And I've been to scout camp, I've seen them, okay? <laughs> no, I think that we love films of deliverance because we are living in the ultimate deliverance story here on Earth. Deliverance is a central and recurring theme in this film called Mortality from Day Zero. After all, we cannot even take our first breath in life without being delivered by someone. And then what? We find ourselves unable to do anything on our own until we're at least, say, 14, 15. We're entirely at the mercy of our first heroes, 
mom and dad, grandparents and guardians. As we get older, we realize that we are in a fallen world in that each of our character arcs includes periods of serious struggle and trial. At times, we are even pushed so far as to say, well, this movie isn't very good. It certainly isn't worth the price of admission. The floor is sticky, the popcorn is stale, and these colorful candies taste like plastic. Okay. I testify that hope comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a savior, there is a redeemer, there is one who is mighty to save. There is a great deliverer. And this morning, I wish to share a few thoughts on deliverance. And like any proper epic trilogy, I'll proceed in three acts. Act one, the Bolivian gas war, a deliverance story. Act two, wait, where's my deliverance? And act three, delivers on Mount Zion. Okay, act one. It is important to recognize that trials and challenges are what we signed up for. This road was never going to be easy. We learned from Lehi that it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things, and from the doctrine and covenants that my people must be tried in all things. President Nelson has said, you who may be momentarily disheartened, remember, life is not meant to be easy. Trials must be borne and grief endured along the way. Yet at the same time, the Lord promises that if we endure it well, he will exalt us from on high and we will triumph over all of our foes. The Lord tells us, wherefore, I am in your midst. I am the good shepherd and the stone of Israel. He that buildeth upon this rock shall never fall. And the psalmist proclaims, the righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all of their troubles. Now, I don't know what specific trials and challenges you face. We each have our list. But what I do know is that when Jesus walked among us during his ministry, he didn't spend very much time, if any at all, with those who were struggle-free, worry-free, or trial-free. Have you any sick among you? Any that are lame or blind or afflicted in any manner? Bring them hither, and I will heal them. To illustrate the Lord's power of deliverance, I want to share with you a modern-day deliverance story, a story of a miracle. Now, we often use the term miracle casually, but today I mean miracle in the strictest sense of the word, in the Moses parts the Red Sea sense of the word. I share this story because it gives me hope and reminds the, me that there is a God in Israel and one who is mighty to save. I share it because what the Lord did in Bolivia in 2003 on behalf of a dozen or so missionaries is miraculous. And it gives me hope that he will do the same for you and for me. I share this story with the permission of my parents who were serving as mission leaders of the La Paz Bolivia mission at the time and Brooke Porter, a young sister missionary who was serving with, with them. This story is movie worthy and for the children here in the audience, it's PG for some thematic elements here. Okay. So it's October 2003 and Bolivia was experiencing a time of significant civil unrest now known as the Bolivian gas war. People were upset about the government's policies around the use of their natural resources, oil and gas in particular. Now, the details of this conflict are beyond the scope of my message today, but suffice it to say that the label of war is appropriate. The conflict turned bloody and resulted in the death of more than 70 people with hundreds more wounded. 
One of the goals of the protesters was to shut down all transportation between the cities of El Alto and La Paz, cities located about 12 miles apart. To accomplish their goal, the protesters erected barricades and scattered broken glass in the streets to limit transportation both inside of and between these two cities. Their leaders vowed that no goods, including fuel, would come in or out of the city. Violence soon broke out, and the government responded by declaring martial law. A dozen or so missionaries in El Alto were trapped and needed to get out. Sister Brooke Porter, a missionary in El Alto at the time, described the situation in her journal as follows, quote, Today is Sunday and has been the longest day ever. The whole afternoon we heard gun, uh, machine guns going off, and they seemed very close. We could hear dynamite blowing things up and ambulances by the dozens coming in. It is scary, and I just want to get out of here. 26 people were killed, and they were letting off gas bombs in our area, which both my companion and I could feel." Close quote. The news reported that 3,000 miners from the rural countries, areas of the country were on their way to El Alto, armed with dynamite, to reinforce the protesters. The danger was real and getting worse by the hour. And it was clear that the missionaries needed to get out of El Alto to the safety of the mission home in La Paz. But there were two massive problems. First, both mission vehicles had less than one-fourth of a tank of gas, nowhere near enough to pick up all of the missionaries. Further, the news had reported that no gasoline had entered the city of La Paz for the past five days. Second, both my parents and their car would be targets for the protesters. My parents, because they were foreigners with possible ties to the U.S. government, and their large white Toyota, because that vehicle was commonly used by government officials. It is in this context that in the very early hours of the morning, my father, after a night spent almost entirely praying, received the following impression. Leave now and you will find gas. Now, this is a particularly tricky endeavor because in order to find gas, you need to use gas. With this risk in mind, he turned to my mom and said, we must leave now if we want to find gas. Without a word, she jumped from bed and off they went like Nephi, not knowing beforehand the things which they should do. My, poor, my parents recorded the following in their journal. After a time, we came across a parked car with two men in it. We stopped and asked, do you know where we can find gas? The men simply told us to drive another block and look left. We followed their advice, and when we looked down the street, saw a gasoline tanker driving slowly. They followed this tanker to a station and filled up to about half a tank, limited by a quota imposed by the station. They then called their assistants and told them to leave that minute to try to find gas for the other vehicle. The assistants were also successful and were also able to fill their car to half a tank. Both of these gas stations were closed soon thereafter, having run out of their limited supply of fuel to sell. But they now had enough gas for the evacuation. The stage was now set. Because the missionaries were scattered throughout El Alto and their various areas, different rendezvous points in the city were determined as pickup locations. However, getting to each of those locations required the missionaries to leave the safety of their apartments and nearly all of their possessions behind and walk the dangerous streets. Sister Porter recorded the following in her journal. President Drake said that we were going to leave that afternoon. 
I knelt down in that adobe, closet-sized room and prayed harder than I had ever prayed before. We left around 4.30 p.m. I was scared to be walking down the main street because there were so many people. Luckily, no one did anything to me. I have never felt so protected in my entire life. With each step I took, I felt more and more invisible. I am amazed at the safety and protection we had in making it to the bishop's house. Now, I do not have time to share all of the amazing stories that happened to get each missionary out, but I will share one. During one of the evacuations, my father and his assistant needed to drive up a very dangerous six-mile stretch of highway between La Paz and El Alto. As they approached the highway, they noticed an enormous convoy entering the highway ahead of them. This convoy consisted of military and police vehicles, including troop carriers with armed personnel. To their surprise, they noticed that many of the vehicles in this convoy were large and white, and a fair number of them were Toyotas. Without an invitation, my father records that they, quote, slipped in behind the lead troop carrier. No one said a thing. We looked very official in our big white car, close quote. What they thought, <clears throat> excuse me, they thought that driving a very conspicuous big white Toyota would be a dangerous weakness. But instead, it turned out to be precisely what they needed to drive to be inconspicuous inside of the convoy. And what they didn't know at the time but learned later was that they were now part of the military convoy evacuating the president of Bolivia and his family out of the city of La Paz. Okay. Now, this powerful military escort, armed to the T, was not only protecting the president of the country, but it was also protecting the president of the mission. My father and his assistant drove inside this convoy for as long as possible and then proceeded to the rendezvous point. When they arrived, they found a group of armed soldiers standing there, and in the midst of these soldiers, five very anxious missionaries. My dad hugged each of the soldiers who explained that when they saw the missionaries unprotected in such a dangerous location, they knew they had to protect them. Miraculously, every missionary was safely evacuated that day. Now, while we can learn several lessons from this story, the one I want to emphasize is the power that comes through pleading with the Lord with real intent. Recall Sister Porter's account, I prayed harder than I'd ever prayed before. And my father, praying through the night before receiving the prompting, leave now to find gas. When things look bad, when the, and when the struggle seems unending, when we feel surrounded by darkness and we don't know how to proceed, well, what can we do? We can call out to the light, it's a capital L, our deliverer. This has been a recurring message from prophetic voices and examples. When Joseph Smith was in the grove, surrounded by thick darkness in the grips of Satan himself, he called upon God and a pillar of light replaced the darkness. When Moses was having his own personal encounter with the adversary, he began to fear exceedingly seeing the bitterness of hell. But when he called upon God in the name of the only begotten, he was delivered. And when Alma the Younger was being tormented with the pains of hell, he cried within his heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me, and then deliverance 
came. The message is clear. We need to call out to God for deliverance. Again, the psalmist, the righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. In addition to prayer, President Henry B. Eyring teaches us that deliverance is available to the humble and the repentant. The tests we face, their severity, their timing, and their duration, I'll get to duration here in a minute, will be unique for each of us. But two things will be the same for all of us. First, the tests at times will stretch us enough for us to feel the need for help beyond our own. And second, God in his kindness and wisdom has made the power of deliverance available to us. The Lord always wants to deliver us through our becoming more righteous. That, requ that requires repentance and takes humility. Act two, wait, where's my deliverance? But what about when we call out and we hear nothing? We call again, it's crickets. What about when deliverance doesn't come? Time passes and more time passes. As Elder Renlund observed, this can seem unfair and that unfairness can be infuriating, especially in a world where it has become so easy to compare our lot with that of everyone else around us. It's easy to say, wait, you sent a military convoy to Jane? I saw it on Instagram. Where's my convoy? You sent gas to Jack? Look, see, here it is on social media. Why am I stuck walking? Where's my miracle? This is unfair. While I don't have the answers to these questions, I do know that this unfairness is part of a feature of mortality and that it has happened to some of the Lord's most elect and chosen. I also believe that there are lessons to be learned while we wait for deliverance. Now, I'll make my point here using several jailbreak stories. It's hard not to enjoy a good jailbreak story. I at least love cheering on the unjustly imprisoned as they patiently tunnel through prison walls, armed, of course, with only the finest Cannon Center cutlery. Now, I don't, I don't mean to imply that Helaman Halls is a prison. Uh, but perhaps the theme of deliverance is nowhere more clear than it, is in, than it is in the case of prophets who find themselves in jail, and it happens quite often. Let's briefly consider three jailbreaks from scripture. King Herod has thrown Peter in jail. Peter's asleep in his cell. When an angel appeared, filled the room with light, and essentially said, put on your clothes, don't forget to sh your shoes, we're out of here, okay? The prison dolls, doors open on their own, and they just walk out, right? No cutlery needed. Second jailbreak, Alma and Amulek have been thrown in jail. They've been beaten, mocked, and spit on. It's been three days and they've had enough. Alma cried saying, how long shall we suffer these great afflictions, O Lord? O Lord, give us strength according to our faith, which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. And then what? Their jailbreak was made easy by the fact that the jail was literally broken to pieces. Okay. Alma and Amulek just walk out. Years later, brothers Nephi and Lehi had a similar experience to that of Alma and Amulek. After a few days, fire conveniently surrounds them, the prison walls come down, and they walk to freedom. These are important faith-promoting accounts, and like the stories I shared about Bolivia, have very happy 
miraculous endings. These are the types of movies that I like to see. When a film is recommended, I often find myself asking, does it, does it have a happy ending? No, not interested. Okay. But life cannot be so easily avoided. What about times when deliverance doesn't come, when we feel it is scripted to do so? Well, let's consider another prisoner's experience. Joseph Smith is imprisoned in Liberty Jail. The conditions are terrible. It's freezing, and the only amenity is straw. It's been three days, then three weeks, then three months, four months, five months. Now, Joseph knew about Peter's jailbreak. He knew the New Testament. He knew that the walls came a-tumbling down for Alma and Amulek. And we know from a letter he wrote in jail that he wondered, wait, where's my deliverance? O God, where art thou, and where's the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? At times, we feel like Joseph. When will this end? Like you, I struggle inside of my own prisons, challenges that lead me to say, okay, I've had enough. Or perhaps even harder is having a front row seat to watch a loved one struggle to endure their own delayed deliverance. Remember, while, while Joseph is suffering in Liberty Jail, we should not forget that Emma and the children are at home suffering as well. Emma wrote the following in a letter to Joseph while he was in jail. Quote, was it not for the direct interposition of divine mercy, I am very sure I never should have been able to have endured the scenes of suffering that I have passed through. But I still live and am yet willing to suffer more if it is the will of kind heaven that I should for your sake. She then goes on in the letter to describe how their toddler son, Alexander, pushes a little chair around the room as he's learning to walk. For reasons that I don't fully understand, but for which I believe are part of the test of mortality, deliverance is sometimes, and perhaps even often, delayed. Two things, however, give me optimism and hope in the midst of delayed deliverance. First, the unfairness will ultimately be for our benefit. From Elder Renlund, in the eternities, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ will resolve all unfairness. If we let him, Jesus will consecrate the unfairness to our gain. He will not just console us and restore what was lost, he will use the unfairness for our benefit. While waiting for deliverance, we can ask ourselves, what lessons can I be learning that I couldn't learn otherwise? What can I take from this experience to grow and improve? Joseph, while in Liberty Jail, enduring his delayed deliverance, received some of the most powerful, important revelations of this dispensation or any, including revelations that now serve as sections 121 through 123 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Like any important life lessons, those we learn while waiting for deliverance will draw us closer to the Savior and help us to understand his love and his plan more fully. I love these words from Gene B. Bingham, quote, Life's experiences can range from humorous to heart-wrenching, from grim to glorious. Each experience helps us understand more about our Father's encompassing love and our capacity to change to the Savior's gift of grace. The second thing that gives me hope in the midst of delayed deliverance is that the promises of the Lord are sure and deliverance will eventually come. Elder Holland, some blessings come soon, some come late, 
and some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. Act three, delivers on Mount Zion. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we have made promises and covenants to participate in the work of salvation, to be saviors on Mount Zion. In other words, we have made promises to be deliverers. And all around us are people in need of deliverance. They suffer from loneliness, depression, isolation, and sickness. They struggle with school, with work, with their social life, with health. It is my testimony that we can pray to know how to help, who to help, and when to help. This can be challenging, but it will get easier and our efforts will be more effective if we pray to see other the way the Savior sees them. And sometimes, like Esther, whose courage saved a Jewish nation, we may be the only person uniquely suited to help. As Esther's cousin Mordecai observed, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? I needed to learn this lesson during my own college years. At this time, I was a third-year graduate student and was doing fine in my program. A new student arrived, let's call him Dave, and right from the start, I had a challenging time being around him. I chalk it up to personality differences. Now, Dave was really struggling in the program and was at risk of washing out. So what did I do? I'm ashamed to say that I took the easy course and simply avoided interacting with him. And while I was never overtly mean, I can say that I knew he was struggling and I did nothing to help. In other words, I ignored an opportunity to help someone when I was uniquely positioned to do so. My attitude was, what, you fell among thieves again? Well, that's part of the ball game. Grad school's hard, right? This is grad school. This attitude carried on for quite some time. Then one Sunday, our ward mission leader, Kenny Loveless, approached me with an invitation. Now, before I get to the invitation, it is important that you know two things about Kenny. First, he is extremely fit and very strong. My guess is that for Halloween, he often dresses up as a building or a wall, something like that, okay? <laughs> now, second, Kenny has been well-trained in the martial arts. He is a master, and at one point he held and may still hold the record for breaking the most wooden boards with his bare fist. Eight boards, no spacers. It's on YouTube. Okay. Kenny has an invitation for me. Mike, you are going to have a missionary experience this week and then report on it in quorum meeting next Sunday. Joseph Smith taught when the Lord commands, do it. Well, I would add, when someone who can break eight boards with their bare fists invites you to do something, you do it, okay? I mean, what were my options? My response to Kenny was simple. Yes, sensei. Okay. Simple. I started immediately thinking about people to invite to church, and the name that popped in my head was Dave. I pushed it away. No chance. His name came again. I pushed it out. It came a third time. I accepted the challenge. Then something unexpected happened. From the very moment I made the decision to extend the invitation to Dave, I started to feel differently about him. I started to see his situation more clearly and my heart softened. I could suddenly sense how he must be feeling. That next week, I had several nice conversations with Dave before I invited him to attend a church activity. 
He sincerely appreciated the offer, though in the end was not very interested. So what came of this? Dave didn't join the church, but those interactions helped both of us to get to a better place. We were each delivered, even just in part, from our own challenges. Dave found in me someone who could, help, who could uniquely help him, particularly with some of the more technical research skills required to be successful in our program. And I was delivered from my shameful attitude. I learned that when we see others the way the Savior sees them, we will not only be inspired to help, but we will be inspired to know how to help. And this help may not take the form of gospel discussions. Those discussions may need to come later. Today, we may be inspired to deliver another from struggles with their program, with their math, with their school, with feelings of isolation, loneliness, or depression. To summarize the key points of my message, first, we are all living in a deliverance story, and the Lord our God is the great deliverer. In him there is power to save us from all struggles, sicknesses, and sins. There is a balm in Gilead in one who is mighty to save. Second, it is left to the Lord to know the when and how of our deliverance. And while we wait, there are important lessons to be learned, our own section 121s to receive. And third, we can participate in the work of deliverance together with our Savior to ease the suffering and burdens of others. We can pray to see others how the Lord sees them, and we can ask what we can do to help. And now for the really good news. Spoiler alert. We know how this movie will end. And while we don't know the character arc of each player, we know the grand story arc. We know who the great protagonist of the story is, and we have his promises. His message to us, as recorded in John, is beautiful and fills me with hope. Let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Where I am, there you may be also. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I testify that Jesus Christ is our Savior. As taught in the Come Follow Me lesson last week, he removes our chains of grief by taking those chains upon himself. He frees us not only by opening the gates of our prisons, but also by taking our place there. He does not deliver us remotely or from a social distance, but he is there suffering with us. He is the great deliverer and the hero of each of our stories. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This devotional address with Michael Drake was given on October 4th, 2022. BYU Devotionals are a production of BYU Broadcasting.